Welcome to the Foxtails International Podcast, where every week we explore new stories and tell old tales. We help build a community through the ancient art of storytelling. We tell our stories and hope to inspire you to find your voice, to stand up and sing out. Our stories shape our world. Your stories can change the world. I disagree with Shakespeare. We are more than actors on a stage. You are the author of your life story. Share the link with your friends. Support us by joining our Patreon team. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join us every week to fall in love with the world and all of its possibilities. In this week's episode, we introduce you to one of my personal heroes, John James Audubon. I've been portraying Audubon for more than 20 years, and one year for a grant, I had to count, I did more than 140 shows. Recently, I just published a biography of Audubon, or dare I say, an unauthorized autobiography, because most of the writing is his. People know him for his art, which is brilliant, and you'll see some in a moment. But what most people don't know is he was also a brilliant scientist and ornithologist, and we'll get to know some of the birds as he saw them. But here is our introduction to John James Audubon. Bonjour, madame, mademoiselle. My name is John James Audubon. You have heard of me, no? I was the first man to paint a portrait of every bird in North America. It took me more than 30 years, but eventually I amassed a collection of 465 species of bird. Many of them I was the first to paint. And I named them for my friends. And if I would have known you, I might have named a bird for you, no? <laughs> I am here today to share with you my art. I'm here to share with you my travels in the wildest places in North America. But most important, I'm here to share with you my love for the birds of this land. Where should I begin? At the beginning, no? I was born on the Isle of Santo Domingo. I believe you call this island Haiti. My father, who owned a rather large plantation, yes, my father did own slaves, but he was kinder to his slaves than most, for when the slaves of Haiti had an uprising and murdered their masters, that's one way to earn your freedom, <laughs> they did not murder my father. They warned him of the upheaval, and they aided him in his escape. And when he fled the island, he fled with everything of value, including his only son, me. <laughs> and he took me back to Nantes, to Lore in the, the Lore River Valley in France, where my stepmother, the only mother I ever knew, she spoiled me. Every morning, she'd send me to the forest and fields with a basket filled with fine edibles. Every evening I came home, my basket would still be full. Of course, I'd eaten the sandwiches and chocolate. You like chocolate? <laughs> but after I emptied the basket, I would fill it once more with pretty pebbles I found along the shore. And every stone I found, I would ask, is it igneous or metamorphic or sedimentary? Every feather I found, I would ask, what bird and what part of the bird? Let me ask you. Look at the size, the shape, the color. What bird? And what part of the bird? If you ask questions and look for your own answers, Mother Nature will reveal herself in all of her mystery. Now my papa, who was good friends with Monsieur Washington, you know George Washington, yes? My father had a fleet of six ships and he helped to run the British blockades, delivering troops and supplies throughout the war. Monsieur Washington gave my papa a small cameo and recommended that he purchase property along uh, Parkyoman Creek. You know about Valley Forge. Have you seen that famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware? 
If you've seen this portrait, then you know you should not stand up in a boat. <laughs> but when, my, when Washington was camped at, uh, at Perkyoman Creek, uh, at Valley Forge, waiting for night and the cover of darkness to attack the British and catch them unawares, he was camped near my father's farm. But I am getting ahead of myself. As my father sailed in the Triangle of Trade with slaves from Africa, raw materials from the Americas, and finished goods from Europe, wherever he went, he would bring me a souvenir. You like presents, yes? From Africa, he brought me a small monkey. Would you like to have a pet monkey? No, you would not. They are mean and they smell bad. And when they are mad, they throw their poop at you. I did not like this beast. But from the Caribbean, he brought me a scarlet macaw. Do you know this bird? Large parakeet, long tail feathers, red and green. I love this bird. Let me tell you a story, one of my earliest memories that might give you an idea of my love for birds. When I was a little boy, five years old, I was eating my breakfast, and my parakeet landed on the chair beside me. He said, Du pont au para parakeet? Du pont au para parakeet? Parlez-vous français? Du pont au lait, bread and milk, pour la parakeet, yes. Of course, I shared a crust of bread with my favorite bird. The monkey wanted the piece of toast. The monkey came marching across my breakfast table. The monkey came marching across my breakfast, grabbed the parakeet and properly removed his head. I was a little boy, five years old. I began to cry, kill the monkey, kill the monkey. Of course, they did not kill the monkey. But I'll tell you, my servant did put a chain about his ankle, and the monkey never went anywhere without his chain. As for my beloved parakeet, my mama gave me a small wooden box, and we buried him in the backyard. It was a funeral befitting the king of France himself. Little do we know, a few years later, the king of France would lose his head to a band of monkeys. A guillotine is a very effective manner for removing one's head, no? Let them eat cake, she said, as she lost her head. But that is another story for another day. As my father sailed in the triangle of trade, whenever he came home, he would ask, have you been a good student, have you? Practice your violin? I must admit, I'd rather be in the forest and fields drawing birds and gathering stones. When my father asked me to play a song for him, I played quite poorly. He was so mad at me until I took him to my bedouin and I showed him my drawings of the birds of France. I showed him my collection of stones, every stone labeled igneous or metamorphic or sedimentary. I showed him my collection of feathers, every feather labeled what bird, what part of the bird. My papa was proud of me. He said my bedouin was a veritable museum of art and science and he wanted to encourage me. So he sent me to study with Jacques-Louis David. You know David, the greatest artist of our day. When he painted Napoleon riding his horse into battle, the horse rearing up on his hind legs, even the horse was life-size, and so was N N Napoleon was life-size as well. But we spent all of our time in the basement of the museum, drawing stone statues and wooden mannequins. I wanted to draw life. So sometimes I would skip school. I would go to the park. I would draw the trees that grew, the birds that flew, the flowers that bloomed. But I guess I skipped school one too many times. Maybe once is too many. For I was evicted from art school, sent home a failure. My father was so angry. He felt I needed more discipline. And so he sent me to the military academy. Do you recall your school days with fondness, no? Or do you remember your school as a fortress or a prison? My school was a fort that had a prison. But my papa, who taught naval navigation and astronomy, 
He often said, when you learn to read the stars, you know where you are upon the earth. But when my papa would sail away, the cat is gone, the mice shall play. I would climb the old stone wall of the school and head on down to the shore of the sea. And soon I had amassed a collection of shells. And every shell I found, I would ask, from whence sea hath this shell come? Now one day while I was collecting shells, a professor caught me. He, he dragged me by my ear, and I'm not speaking metaphorically. He threw me in a dungeon vial for skipping class. I have to admit, I had mixed emotion about the return of my papa. He would set me free, I hope, but he would be so angry at me. At this time, Napoleon began to wage war across Europe. And though my father was an officer, maybe because he was an officer, he knew better than most that not all war is just. My papa did not want to lose his only son. And so he forged my passport, and he smuggles me out of the country. When we sailed for America, 68 days across the Atlantic. Pirates attacked the ship. Scared me too. <laughs> you call them pirates, we call them privateers. The French and the British hired them to attack their enemy. But with little gold my father had given me, I had hidden in the ballast down below. I would like to say I arrived safely in New York City, but that would not be true. During the voyage, I contracted yellow fever. Do you know yellow fever? If you know yellow fever, you know that within four or five days, nearly half of the people who contract the disease do not see another sunrise. But the captain knew the best cure was no cure at all. If the disease did not kill you, the treatment might. They would uh, uh, take blood, bleed you, believing the blood was poisonous, or attach leeches to suck out the poisoned blood. Some say this is what killed my father's friend, Monsieur Washington. It was not disease, but the constant bloodletting. But the captain knew the best cure was no cure at all. So he put me to bed, he put me in the care of two elderly Quaker ladies who fed and watered me. But I was so sick I could not stand up. When my strength returned to me, I walked from New York to Philadelphia. Could you imagine making that walk? In 1803, America was a forest, immense, immeasurable. They say a squirrel could climb a tree along the Atlantic Ocean. And that same squirrel could go from treetop to treetop to treetop all the way to the Mississippi River without touching the forest floor. I know this is true because I have made that journey, not in the treetops, but I have walked from the Mississippi to the Atlantic and back several times. It was then that I fell in love with these birds of this land. You have so many birds here in America that one would never see as a little boy growing up in France. From the glittering fragment of a rainbow that is the ruby-throated hummingbird, to the great pink flamingo that lives along the Florida Gulf Coast, from the snowy owl to the white pelican. It was then I began to draw the birds of America in earnest. And I'm not embarrassed to admit, when I first began, I was not so good. I would shoot a bird. I would lay it on the table. And then I would draw it as well as I was able. But my early drawings, they looked like dead birds on a table. So I took my entire portfolio and I threw it to the flames. I burned them all because they were not good enough. And I began again. I thought that maybe I could hang them from the ceiling with string, but they drooped like dead birds. My early portraits would serve fine as a sign for a father's shop. So once more, I burned my entire portfolio and I began again. 
And then one morning I awoke and I knew what I had to do. I ordered my servant to prepare a horse for me and I rode quite rapidly into town. I arrived before the shopkeeper, so I took a bath in Parkyoman Creek. And when the shopkeepers arrived, I purchased wire, thick and thin, long and strong, every diameter. On my way home, I shot a belted kingfisher. Do you know this bird? Belted because it has a blue or brown belt or band across its chest. King because it wears a crown, more like a mohawk haircut, yes? Kingfisher because it likes to eat fish. I brought this bird home and my miller prepared a board for me. I scored the board with lines, vertical and horizontal. And then I took three pins and I pinned each foot to the board. I took a long, thick wire and drove it up through the belly, the chest, the head. With the wire inside, the head did not droop. I took a long, thin wire and I drove it down through the wing. With the wire inside, I could bend the wing and it would hold the position that I desired. And there, pinned to the board, I had what appeared to be a flying bird. But even more, I would measure the beak of the actual bird and then I would measure the beak of my drawing. I would measure the feather, the talon, so every portion of every bird is exactly life-size. But even more, I tried to capture the story of the bird, its habitat, where it lives, what it eats. It took me more than 30 years, but eventually I drew more than a thousand individual specimens of 465 species. And every bird I painted, I wrote the story of its life published in more than 2,000 pages, seven volumes, the Ornithological Biography. So let me challenge you. What are your favorite birds? How many could you name? More than naming them, do you know their story? How they build their nest? What they eat? Whether they live here year-round or migrate? Again, I say, ask a lot of questions and look for your own answers, and Mother Nature will reveal herself. So let me challenge you. Choose a favorite bird. Draw that bird, not really small in the corner of the paper, but fill the page, life-size. And within your drawing, try to highlight some of the differences between the male and female, where they live and what they eat. Try to capture the story of every bird. And if indeed a picture is worth a thousand words, then each of your pictures can be worth a short essay five to 10 pages about every bird that I drew. Let me help you with your homework. I'll tell you the story of a few of my favorite birds. The great white pelican. My friend, Meriwether Lewis, you have heard of Lewis and Clark, yes? When Lewis and Clark came back from their expedition, I used the birds that they collected to name Lewis's woodpecker and Clark's nutcracker. But Meriwether Lewis caught a white pelican on the upper Missouri River. He measured the rubbery gullet and found that it will hold up to five gallons of water. Now, unlike the brown pelican, which I also painted, the brown pelican lives in the salt water, the white pelican fresh water. The brown pelican is a solo hunter. It will fly above the bay looking for a fish, and when it spies a fish, fill back its wings and sploosh into the water, hoping to bring a fish to the surface. They are solo hunters. But the white pelican believes, as I do, that we can accomplish so much more when we work together. I have seen them with my own eyes. They sit on the water, shoulder to shoulder, kicking their feet and splashing their wings. A line, imagine, of 20 white pelicans moving along together. And they are schooling the fish, 
like a pack of wolves will chase a herd of caribou, or a pod of whales will create a bubble net to school the fish. The white pelican, if you could imagine, moving along the surface, splashing their wings and kicking their feet, schooling the fish. I've seen with my own eyes as they bubble in the shallows, hundreds, nay, thousands of minnows, faced with a difficult choice. What would you decide? Put yourself in their fins. You can leap upon the shore where you'll certainly die. Or, like that old English children's game, Red Rover, Red Rover, race towards the pelicans and hope to get through. But all on cue, 20 pelicans will open that rubbery gullet. You do the math. 20 birds, each of them can hold as much as five gallons. A hundred gallons of water drawn into those huge rubbery gullets. And if you look very closely on the interior, not teeth, but they have a, a ridge like a sieve, so that when they close the rubbery gullet, the water comes out and the minnows stay there within. I believe it was a poet from my home state of Kentucky who said, an amazing bird, the pelican, his beak can hold more than his belly can. Inside his beak, he'll hold food for a week, but I do not see how the hell he can. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do is to go bird watching. And I especially love to go bird watching in a museum where the birds don't fly away. <laughs> Join me on a tour of the Peoria Art Museum in an exhibit that was put together by the John James Audubon State Park in Kentucky. And I will say, if you want to visit a great museum, the John James Audubon State Park in Kentucky has the best collection of Audubon's art, and that's where these images come from. Please join me as we go birdwatching in the museum with John James Audubon. In each of my portraits, I try to tell the story of the life of the bird, the difference between the male and the female, their habitats and where they live, their favorite foods, and I do believe the yellow-billed cuckoo is a perfect example. Let me ask you, what is the cuckoo eating? A butterfly. A swallow-tailed butterfly. Now I ask you to look very closely here at the leaf and you can see tiny black specks. The eggs of the tiger swallow-tailed butterfly. It only lays its eggs on a member of the pawpaw family. And so this is a pawpaw tree in fruit. Now, I did not paint the eggs or the caterpillars, but look more closely. What do you see here? The leaves have been eaten by the caterpillar. Now, knowing that the swallowtail only lays its eggs on a member of the pawpaw family, and you can see that the eggs have hatched and the caterpillar has eaten this leaf, and somewhere, it has transformed itself into a chrysalis, which has metamorphosized into the adult butterfly. Here, you not only have the story of the bird, of the insect, but you also have the relationship, the food web of the forest, all captured in one exquisite painting of the yellow-billed cuckoo. We have three members of the same family of birds. And what family might that be? Woodpeckers. They're all woodpeckers. And I will challenge you to look more closely at these three different species of woodpeckers. What are some of the differences that you see between them? What are the obvious differences? And can you be more specific when you say size? Some are larger than others. Some are larger than others. And color? Some of the color is very bright in some areas. The size of the bill. The size of the bill is also very important. The tail fan. The tail fan, yes. Now, what are some of the things that all three of these birds have in common? Stripes. The color patterns, though the colors are different, the patterns are very similar.
They're all woodpeckers, we know this, and so they peck wood looking for? Insects. For insects and grubs and beetles. What else do you know? Yes, if you look very closely, you will see that they have opposing toes. That their lower two toes oppose the top two to give them additional stability as they are hanging onto the bark of the tree. And if you look more closely still, you mentioned the fan of the tail. All of them have a pointed tail. And this pointed tail is used to help them cling onto the tree. Kind of like a tripod, their opposing toes give them additional strength and then their tail stuck into the bark allows them to hold on quite firmly while they bang their head against the tree. <laughs> and one thing you cannot see, but I discovered in my dissection of the woodpecker, their brains float. And like a shock absorber, they can bang their head against the tree all day long without getting a headache. I would not recommend that you try this at home. <laughs> As an artist, were able to see so much more well in part because I spent literally thousands of days in the forest of America mm -hmm. thousands upon hundreds of thousands of hours often dozens of days studying a single bird and learning its nature Every bird that I painted, I wrote their biography, the ornithological biography, published in five volumes, which they do have one of the volumes on display, and we'll talk more about it later. So in each of my portraits, I try to capture the drama, the art of the bird, as well as something scientifically accurate. And so thank you for noticing this. As Audubon, I've had the great good fortune to perform with the Illinois Raptor Center. They're one of the best in the Midwest at rehabilitating injured birds. And some of the birds they can't release into the wild, they will use as educational birds. And here's a brief moment of one of those programs that I did with the Illinois Raptor Center. This very beautiful red-shouldered hawk. Like all birds of prey, it has a very sharp beak and very sharp talons. And that is why she is wearing very thick leather gloves. Um, but do they always have a red tail? They do not get their red tail until after their first year. And so they will have a striped tail when they are younger. These are the fastest animals on the earth. These birds have been clocked at more than 200 miles per hour. At uh, what was known as the Sears Tower, um, there was a police officer using one of those uh, electronic devices that might have caught you speeding on the highway. He heard that they could fly more than 200 miles an hour and he did not believe it. But he saw one diving from the tallest structure in Chicago and he clocked it at 210 miles an hour. If your eyes were as big as its eyes in relation to your brain, your eyes would be the size of a grapefruit. Now because they cannot move their eyes, their neck with the same number of vertebrae that we have is much more flexible. Look at that head turn around. <laughs> Turning completely around. Most birds of prey can see their prey at a mile away. If they're high on a cliff or high on a tree, depending on what they're looking for. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And maybe you learned a little something about birds. And maybe you were even inspired to want to learn more about John James Audubon. Please check out my biography, Adventures with Audubon by Brian Fox Ellis. And maybe, most important, I've inspired you to want to go outside and go bird watching.
It's amazing that every spring and fall, literally 10 million birds fly over your house. Quoting Jane Goodall, she said, if 10,000 gnu or wildebeest came migrating through your yard, like the African savannah where she works, would you go out and see them? Well, every spring and fall, 10 million birds are migrating through your neighborhood. Go out and see them. And with eBird from Cornell Labs and Merlin, a free app to help you identify birds, you can participate in citizen science projects. There are actually several. One of my favorite is the Christmas bird count that's been going on for more than 100 years, where in the month around Christmas, citizens like you and I go out and count birds. Or you could do the backyard bird count from the warmth of your living room or kitchen in February, watching the birds at your feeders. Or you can go bird watching throughout your neighborhood, throughout the county, throughout the world, using eBird and Merlin to help you identify those birds. And you counting birds contributes valuable data to citizen science projects. And that's how we know that some birds are making a great comeback. Eagles and wild turkeys and even whooping cranes and California condors are on the rise. But other birds, sadly, their numbers are declining. First collect that data through citizen science. And then that information helps us to make better choices about wetland restoration or replanting forest and prairie by improving the habitat. And that only helps the birds but it adds to our quality of life. Inspired by Audubon, spend some time enjoying the birds in your backyard. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Foxtails International Podcast. Follow this link to invite me to your community or take a look at my schedule to see when I might be performing near you. Share the link with your friends, support us by joining our Patreon team, and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join us every week to fall in love with the world and all of its possibilities.